Pastor Bob. I tell you, it was worth it just for the worship this morning, wasn't it? I tell you what, what, a, what an awesome time to praise God, and I hope you had a, I hope you enjoyed that I did. Amy, Amy, uh, Chris, we're going to close with the love of God. Okay, yeah, there's thumbs up, and thanks, thanks, Chris. Thanks for everybody coming out and the weather. I know it's been a kind of a, a hard couple days, and everybody said amen, right? And uh, all you that have braved the, the, the weather to, to come on out. Uh, Pastor Bob fell. And it hit his head, but came on out, and we appreciate that. And I, he did pretty good for a guy with a concussion, right? Uh, and uh, so we're, we're praying for him. Do pray for Bob. And uh, I see Dick and Karen there, and they've come out. They've made it to an Advent service. They've been in hospitals, reclining and, re- and resting in hospitals here and there, and, uh, and they're out. It's good to see you guys this morning, and all of you uh, that have come out in this, this difficult weather. And I, I know it's not easy. And uh, it's just good to be together in God's house, and I, and I hope that we can, we can sense his presence today as we work through his word together. You know, we live in a uh, pessimistic world, and, but, but we shouldn't be pessimistic people. Even as we sang this morning, uh, you know, there's songs that, that, um, that really touch me deep inside. And uh, the love of God, when we get to, to verse 2, where you start talking about the ocean being filled with ink and every man a scribe and, and not being able to contain the love of God. I tell you, that always moves me deep within. I don't know about you, but that, that's one of those verses. If there's ever been a better verse written in a song, I'm not sure what it is because it just moves me every time I hear that. And then when we sang the Bethel song as we were closing and, and the phrase is, the waves and the wind still know his name. <laughs> And I don't know about you, but every time, all I have to hear is the intro to that. And, and I start thinking about that ideal, that optimistic ideal, that, that even whatever's facing you today, it's aware of the name of Jesus. And it moves me within. And, and I almost automatically start tearing up, thinking about what we're going to sing. <laughs> we have an optimistic gospel. But, but sometimes in this pessimistic world, it's difficult to be optimistic. And, and this morning we're going to deal with how can I live optimistically in a pessimistic world? And um, all of you have friends and family and neighbors that they, they're, they're Debbie Downers. Who, who knows a Debbie Downer? Uh, okay, right? Who is a Debbie Downer? Raise your hand, right? You know those people that, you know, the glass is not only half empty, it's dirty too, right? Uh, that, that everything's negative. And I, I can remember there was, a, there was a guy when I was a kid, he was playing on a church softball team and he was, he was complaining about a call. And one of the older guys that was sitting in the stands turned and said he would complain about not having something to complain about. And so there's people like that. And, and maybe, maybe you have a tendency. I, I think all of us have a tendency to fall one way or the other, either to be pessimistic or optimistic. And maybe you have a tendency to see things in a pessimistic way. And, and this sermon's for you. See, see, I believe as followers of God, as followers of Jesus, as ordinary people following Jesus, we have a reason to be pessimistic or optimistic. Let's strike that, Josh. Optimistic. But you see examples of pessimistic pessimism in our world. I've got several examples for you. Here, here's some little sayings. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving isn't for you. Uh, 
He who laughs last thinks slowest, okay? Think about that next time you don't laugh at my jokes. Borrow money from a pessimist, they don't expect it back. <laughs> when everything's coming your way, you're in the wrong lane and going the wrong way. Bills travel through the mill at twice the speed of checks, amen? amen. Experience is something you don't get until just after you need it. <laughs> no one is listening until you make a mistake. The hardness of butter is directly proportional to the softness of the bread. Uh, I like this one. The severity of the itch is inversely proportionate to the ability to reach it. If you think nobody cares, try missing a couple of payments. Uh, we live in a pessimistic world, and we, we see it all around us, and we watch the news, and, and the news is pessimistic. And, and part of it is bad news sells more than good news. You, you realize that, right? You, you realize that people will watch. Psychologically, we will watch bad news more than good news. And so if your newscast was all puppies and kittens and good, fuzzy, filling stories, you'd stop watching it. We, we want to know the bad news. And, and part of that, I believe, is self-protection in that we want to know if there's something bad happening. And, and, and part of it's just a psychological part of us that, that we crave the bad news. And, and so the newscast realized that. And so they fill the newscast, and you watch, you pay attention, with far more news, that, bad news than good news. And, and so I'm concerned because we live in a news-saturated age. You watch and you listen and you read far more news than you did 30 years ago. Amen? Right? Some of you, all you watch is the news. You watch Fox News as if, as if it's the Bible. And over and over, you hear bad news, and bad news begins to orient us to a state of pessimism. We live in a pessimistic world, but as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be pessimistic. Amen? Amen. Now, we've been dealing with Jesus here, and this is the last Sunday of this series. I, I, I don't know. It's been, this has been the fastest series I ever remember preaching through. It was six weeks, but it seems like we just started this series. But this is the last week of Jesus here. And we've been dealing with this simple ideal, the Christ event. Christmas is not a point in history. It is a change in history. It means Emmanuel, God with us. It means Jesus here. And so we have this optimistic view that because of what Christ has done, that whatever we're going through, we don't go through it alone, but Jesus is present with us, that the Holy Spirit can infill us, that, that we can experience the presence of God, whatever we're going through. And our God is optimistic. We have this optimistic God who believes that humankind is worth saving. That I'm worth saving, that you're worth saving. We serve this optimistic God with optimistic grace, and we should rejoice in that. See, we serve an optimistic God who gives optimistic grace to overcome a pessimistic world. I would suggest this. If you're struggling with an attitude that's always negative, pay more attention to God. Pay more attention to Jesus. Read, read your scripture. Read how God moves through scripture. You know, I'm always amazed 
how we read the book of Revelation. You know, we read the book of Revelation and, and oftentimes it's all about beasts and signs and weird things happening all over the world. And, you know, we try to place that and orient that in our time or another time. And we, we, we try to interpret it so that somehow that, that, that we can make timelines and, and figure everything out. But can you read it in a different way? The book of Revelation is all about a God who will go to any stretch and any length to save a lost and dying humanity. <laughs> a God that at the end of the book is wiping every tear from your eye. See, even the book of Re Revelation is optimistic. You, you get in the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is, is this weeping prophet this, this downer of a prophet. And yet in the book of Jeremiah, you, you have these promises that are so optimistic of what God will do for his people. We have an optimistic God who gives optimistic grace to overcome a pessimistic world. And Christmas, the, the season that we're celebrating is optimistic. It's, it's not a negative season. You know, all the songs that we sing, except for the Christmas shoes song. <laughs> who, who listens to Christmas shoes? I'm, I'm sorry, who, who loves that song? Okay, we got one, one, Terry, we'll pray for you later. Okay, June loves it. Uh, Christmas songs are optimistic. Christmas movies are optimistic. You know, Scrooge is redeemed, right? In, in A Wonderful Life, George Bailey finds out that he really has people who love him. Even Rudolph gets to lead the sleigh. Even Buddy the Elf finds his dad. Christmas movies are optimistic, and Christmas songs are optimistic, and the story of Christmas is optimistic. Can we go back to the beginning, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8? And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. That's just reading this week on Facebook, so I know it's got to be true, um, that in Charles Short, Schultz's Charlie Brown Christmas, did anybody see this on Facebook, that when Linus reads this story, he drops his blanket. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it, you know, as I thought about that, it kind of moved me because see, Linus's blanket represented his fears, but Charles Schultz in his story, even though many people wouldn't even notice it in his Christianity and his belief, he realized that in this story we can drop our fears. 
That there are all those things that hold us back, all those things that, that keep us awake at night, all those things where we don't see any hope, we can let go of them knowing that our optimistic God has done something different in our world. Jesus changes everything. Don't be afraid. Peace. God has done something new. And, and you can let go of fear and you can let go of all these things that are keeping you awake and, and driving you crazy because the Christ child makes a difference. You know, Jesus says a similar thing. He says in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It's an optimistic story. And we sing optimistic songs. And we tell optimistic stories. And even in this season, I think most people have this sense of optimism that causes them to give and go and do that maybe they wouldn't do at other times. But in the face of this optimistic story and this optimistic God and this optimistic grace and this optimism that I feel deep within my core, there is the reality of my world. And the reality of my world is there are things that cause me to be pessimistic. You know, there, there's, there's war. And Jesus says we'll always have war, right? You know, there, there's there's violence. There's, there's hatred. There's racism. There's poverty. And Jesus says you'll always have the poor. That there's sin and, and, and this optimistic place. When I look around me, there's still pessimistic things going on. Even though Jesus came, he didn't end all wars. He didn't end poverty. He didn't end hatred or racism or violence. How can I live optimistically in a pessimistic world? Now, the reality is Jesus lived optimistically, even though things were not always positive around him. That, that even though Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified, Jesus lived optimistically. Even though Jesus knew that, that his disciples would all be martyred or imprisoned, Jesus lived optimistically. Even though he knew that, that he was part of a, a, a kingdom, an unseen kingdom, and the seen, the material kingdom, would constantly oppose and be directly in opposition to his kingdom and his way, Jesus still lived optimistically. See, see Jesus lived in a way that was optimistic in a negative world. He loved people person to person doing what he could. Jesus died for all, but he modeled a life of personal care. And when you read the narrative, you see Jesus over and over. You see these great teaching moments where he's 
teaching to multitudes. But where Jesus was best was person to person, serving, loving, leading. See, love does not have to be expressed in some world-shaking way. Instead, menial task done with the right motive can show real love. And Jesus lived this way, and we can be Jesus here meeting real needs out of our own resources. It doesn't have to show up on the front page of the newspaper to be Jesus here. In fact, oftentimes it will not. You know, we have these great stories of Jesus feeding the multitudes. Ooh, that's a big picture thing. But then you also have these stories of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. A menial task. A job for a servant. A meeting a practical need. And in that, Jesus models this optimism where real love can be shown. So how do we live like Jesus? How, how, how do we live in this optimistic way? And, I, and I'm going to share another story and listen along with me. Pay attention. We're going to read the story of the Good Samaritan. You've heard the story a, a thousand times, and, and probably there's a, a thousand sermons you could, you could preach on this. We're going to focus on, on the Samaritan and how he, he, he acted towards the injured man, a Jewish man was traveling down from Jerusalem, uh, from down to Jericho. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and we saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now, now this story teaches us that the primary lesson or the first lesson that Jesus is trying to teach is the extent of love. Who should I love? The question is asked, Jesus asks, what's the greatest command? And the, and the lawyer says, uh, to, to love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, and mind, love my neighbor as myself. And he follows that question up with, who is my neighbor? And this story is to tell this man or, or to illustrate who the neighbor is. And, and the neighbor extends beyond those we just know and love to even people that may be outside our comfort zone. In this story, the Samaritan represents somebody who was an enemy to those listening to Jesus tell his story. And so it deals with the extent of love, and it also deals with the nature of love. You know, there's all sorts of other hidden things in this story or things that aren't as apparent, including that the fact that, that those who were part of the religious 
organization, the religious system, we're going to pass by and we're not going to heal. And Jesus in this, in this parable, Jesus is represented by the Samaritan. And he doesn't represent the religious order, but he, he represents those outside the religious order. And he's going to bring healing. But in this parable, Jesus, the Samaritan, is an image of Jesus. He loves like Jesus loves. And there's five quick things that I want us to see. And I think as we see these things, it'll help us move from pessimism to Christ-like optimism. Can I say it like this? Sometimes feelings follow actions. And sometimes to move from a negative worldview and a negative attitude, the way through is not waiting for your feelings to change, but begin acting in accordance to a, a more optimistic spirit and allow God to move through your service and your action and your love to reorient how you think. And see, it's possible, it's possible to wait for years and years and years and years and decades and wait for your attitude to change to a perspective that allows you to serve and it will never happen. But my experience has been that when I serve and I do and I give, even when at the beginning I may not exactly feel like doing and giving and serving, God does something within me that orients my attitude to match my actions. And I, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not saying, oh, don't play pretend, don't be a hypocrite. But, but folks, it's what I'm saying is our, our attitudes, the way we think, our, our emotions are funny things. And, and oftentimes... It's when we begin to do the right things that our emotions and our motives and our attitudes begin to match our actions. And Jesus shows us five things that I believe we can begin to do uh, that can allow us to create within us a Christ-like optimism. The first is this. Consider others with compassion, not indifference. In this story, you have two, three individuals who are contrasted and, and two ways of dealing with the injured man. First, you have the religious leaders and their, their attitude towards the injured man is complete indifference. There's no other way to explain it. They walk right by. They don't even begin to do anything to relieve him of his injury. And then you have the Samaritan who is filled with compassion. Now, this word compassion is a word that's used with Jesus as well. Jesus sees the crowds with compassion. It's the same word used when the father sees the prodigal son returning home. He sees him with compassion. And so this compassionate attitude is an attitude that, that from your gut you, you have a feeling, uh, you're, you're moved, you're moved inside to, to act towards this person. And this requires that we see and we look and we pay attention. Those people that you encounter today that, that may 
may not meet your standard, God calls us to see them not with indifference or judgment, but compassion. Um, that, that, that waitress or that waiter that, that may be doing a poor job, have you ever considered there may be something going on in their life that, that's causing them to be less attentive to your drink order than, than them just not caring about you? Have you ever thought that, that, that maybe, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, the other day, I was going to pick up Spencer at the school, and, and uh, uh, it was, tryouts were over, and so you know, I was going to get him to find out what was going on with his tryouts, and his basketball tryouts, and, and, and some lady was following me all the way down, 31. I mean, she was right on my tail. So I pull in the school and think, well, she won't pull in here. And she's right on my tail still. So I think, well, go to the front of the school. Surely she's not going there too. And she followed me all the way and was like, you know, we were right in front of the school and, and she was honking her horn and acting crazy. And, you know, I was just calmly saying, oh, praise God from whom? No. <laughs> I was doing what you do. I was going, what's wrong with this nut? You know, this is school. There's people all around. You know, why is she acting like this? So I pulled over. Go around me. And she pulled up. And picked up a kid that had just been cut. Who's sitting there weeping. I've been there. And God said, Paul, <laughs> maybe you need to have more compassion on people. See, these people that, that we judge so quickly or we're so indifferent to, there, there's a lot of things going on in their life that I think God wants us to take a step back and not judge and not be indifferent, but maybe see them like God sees them. See opportunities not obligations. Uh, the, the Samaritan saw this situation completely differently than, than the Levite or the priest. The Levite and the priest saw what? Oh man, if I go over here, I'm going to be unclean. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go through all this process of being made clean so I can serve in the temple, or it's going to take me out of my routine, or, or, or maybe I'm going to have to spend a few dollars, or I'm going to spend some time with this guy. There's more important things that I can be doing. Surely someone else can help. And, and oh, but, but besides that, maybe, 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 maybe he's got friends that are close that can help. And, and this is just not my obligation. And the Samaritans saw it as an opportunity to do the right thing. How do you see these things, those circumstances where you could do something? Do you see them as obligations or opportunities? Winston Churchill said, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, and an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And, and, and do we see these obligations, do we see these situations as opportunities 
See, we're kingdom people, and we should see in a different way. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And I think what he's telling Nicodemus is not only is this about being born again to be saved, but I think he's telling Nicodemus, listen, you need to see opportunities in a different way. You need to see the move of God in a different way. And folks, sometimes all of us need to be born again just so we can see things differently. Thirdly, choose vulnerability over self-protection. The Samaritan put himself at risk. You know, it's, it's, it's possible that the Levite and the priest saw the situation and they said, this guy's probably dead already and there's probably, there's probably still some thieves around and I am not going to risk this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to cross the other side of the street and I'm going to get as far away and as quickly from this situation as I can. And the Samaritan put himself at risk. Now, I'm not calling you to be careless. I'm not calling you to pick up strangers in the middle of the, in, in the, middle of the road and, and, and ladies and men. I'm not calling you to, to put yourself in a place of danger, but there's got to be a place of openness. Can, can I tell you the truth? What, what I've found in my life is that when I live this this Christianity, if, if, if I live like a follower of Jesus, like, like Jesus lived, there's times you will be burned. It happens. In the ministry, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've served and I've loved and I've given of myself and my church has given of itself or herself and, and the people who are receiving has just, have just simply been misusing us. I've been lied to. Anybody ever been lied to, right? I'm not calling you to put yourself in a place of danger, but I'm calling us to be willing to be burned by people every once in a while. You know, Jesus was burned by people. You realize that, right? Jesus invested in people, and, and we hear there's the familiar stories we know of Judas. Judas completely betrayed Jesus. We know the story of Peter. You know, Ju Judas was the money keeper. You know, he, he was the, the guy that kept their money, and he, he betrayed Jesus. Jesus invested in him. He burned him. And those are the stories we know. There, there's these implied stories, and when Jesus talks about um, eating his body and drinking his blood, that many turn away. And these are the, the countless disciples that Jesus invested in and loved that when the rubber hit the road, they said, no. See, to, to love like Jesus, we can't be so self-protected that we're not willing to give of ourselves. Value giving more than getting. We live in a what's-in-it-for-me world, Right? And oftentimes we even serve in that way. We serve with the ideal, if I serve in this way, what will I get back? Jesus didn't serve like that. See, Jesus valued giving more than getting. 
And the Samaritan modeled this as well. What can I give? Here are my resources, and I'll work to to provide healing to you. I will give, and I will value that more than getting, because chances are I'm not getting this any any of this back from the injured man. And then finally, commit to the process, not just the moment. See, this guy, the Samaritan, he could have dropped this guy off at an inn and said, hey, I've done my part. Take care of him or find somebody. Maybe you can find his family. But, But he said, you know, if there's more to be paid, I'll pay it. Here's some extra. And then if there's more, I'll be back and I'll pay what's extra. See, he committed to the process. And in your week, in your life, in, in, in your opportunities this week, you will have a mixture of opportunities. You will have long-term and short-term opportunities to love and to care for people. I say seize both. You know, the the short-term ones are easy. You know, it's easy to to drop money in a bucket as you go by. But commit also to the ones that are ongoing. And I would put it this way. The short-term opportunities are times when you can plant a seed, but the long-term opportunities of serving and loving and caring are the best ones we could have. Because it's in the long-term opportunities that we um, that love grows that relationship grows see that's the point of it all right we've talked about that often the point of all of this is relationship God sent Jesus so that we can have relationship with our heavenly father and relationship with each other and so the point of all that we do is not to accumulate things or power or or just have fun. But the point of life is relationship. And so these long-term commitments allow us to build relationships. Now, as I think about this, my my, my best models for for people who live like this have always been my mom and dad. Uh, you know, nobody's going to write any songs or write any books about them. I mean, they're pretty ordinary folks. Dad dad was a barber. He wasn't even a preacher. (laughs) How can that be, right? But my mom and dad are the best models of Jesus here that I've ever seen. And oftentimes it was in simple ways. Sometimes my mom is so compassionate it almost makes you want to throw up, right? Anybody know anybody like that? You know, mom would be one that if she thought she would have had offended you, she would be hugging you in the aisle at church, begging for your forgiveness, trying to figure out how she had offended you. And uh, so she, she has that personality that, you know, she, she really doesn't want to offend anybody. And if somebody's offended in the church, mom was one of the first ones that would go see him and see if there was anything that could be done. I can remember as a child sitting in people's living rooms and watching my mom cry and pray with people because they were mad at the preacher. Who does that? And we weren't even, her boys weren't even preachers. She is just a lay lady. 
But I can see time in my mind, my time and time in my mind, mom doing things. And, and one, one thing I always remember, and it, it, it's a goofy little story, but we were at the Kansas City Zoo when I was probably 13 or 14 years old. You remember when the zoos were a little bit different and the monkeys were just in cages, right? And the monkeys were not near as happy as they are now, right? You know, and does anybody remember monkeys throwing things at you, right? Nobody remembers that? They used to throw their feces at you, right? <laughs> In Kansas City, they had a zoo called Big Mac. And Big Mac was a, a very um, competitive ape. Let's put it that way. And he liked to throw his stuff at you. And I can remember we'd go to, that, to the zoo and you'd stand in front of Big Mac's cage and it was like Dodge feces, right? You know, and uh, so we were there one, one, one Saturday morning and, and we're there with our cousins and, and, and he's throwing and we're ducking and dodging and there happened to be a lady in a wheelchair, right? And her family, they must not have liked her too much is all I could think. Her family just left her right there and dead shot. And her family moved away. They, they just like, oh. And the first one there was my mom. And mom cleaned her up and moved her. And, and I thought, what a perfect example of compassion. You know, they, they, nobody was watching except for me. And she wasn't doing it because we were there, but that was just her nature, that, that she saw and she moved and she acted and she cared. You say, well, Pastor, that's, that didn't make any difference at all. It did to that lady. <laughs> it did in that moment. Mom and Dad, when I grew up, we had a, a little lady that we called Grandma Kay. Mom and Dad bought her house. Uh, Kay was probably five foot tall at the most, 100 pounds. And, you know, as, as, as good of people as my parents were, as Christian as my, people, my parents were, Kay was not. <laughs> and she, she, she lived, they bought it, they moved into a trailer just down the, the road from mom and dad, and they didn't have any kids, uh, Red and Kay. And, and Red died when I was three years old. I can remember Red. Red used to, I had a shirt that looked like a tuxedo. Anybody have one of those T-shirts that looked like a tuxedo? It was a real cool shirt. It had a hole in it. And Red ripped it right off when he saw the hole in it. He used to put ketchup in my belly button. I don't know why he did that, but that sounds weird now. But Red died when I was three. And, and so, you know, we, we were there for Kay. And I was there for Kay. And, and, and Kay was as anti-Christian as you could be. And she smoked like a chimney. And, uh, you know, but she, we'd get... My, nobody ever smoked in our house but Kay. And she, I mean, she, she was quite the pistol. My brothers tell the story where they had a giant come into town. And, you know, he, he was like a sideshow guy. And he was like at a Kroger or something or an IGA. And he wouldn't get up. And Kay cursed him up and down until that giant stood up. You know, her five foot tall. I can remember one time Kay saying, and, and it still shocks me that she'd say this, but she'd say, if Jesus was across the street, I wouldn't leave my house. <laughs> Mom and Dad, we, we loved her. I mean, she, we called her Grandma Kay. She, we, we treat her just like her grandma. And Mom and Dad loved her for years and years and years. 
Kay had two brothers, Milton and Dilmer. And Milton and Dilmer were alcoholics. And when I say alcoholics, I mean, these were guys you would see laying on the street. And it would be that we would be driving home, and Milton and Dilmer would be lying on the street, and my dad would see him, and he'd take us home, and he'd go back and get them, and he'd take them home, and he'd clean them up, and he'd put them to bed. Why? For the love of Kay. You know, ultimately, I, I was in Kay's hospital room near the end of her life, and she told my mom, she goes, you know, Wanda, uh, when I was a young woman, I was, I was seeing a, a gypsy in a, in a circus. And she told me that there was going to be a young family that was going to step beside me, and I was going to walk with them my whole life, and I think it's been you. And it always struck me because I thought that gypsy didn't know she was talking what God wanted for her. <laughs> and near the end of Kay's life, before she died, this Jesus that she wouldn't walk across the street to see became personal Savior. And I believe Kay is in heaven with Jesus now because my mom and dad showed compassion and love for a little lady that really didn't always show it back in the same way. You know what? Milton and Delmer, both before they died, accepted Jesus as their Savior. What Jesus looks like to me? He looks like my parents. They showed compassion. They, they made themselves vulnerable. They opened themselves up. And because of that, lives were changed. What would happen if you began to live optimistic in your world? What happened to your family, your work, your, your school, your neighborhood? We're going to close with the song, Amy. Are you in here? Stand with me, if you will. I'm going to pray, and, and then this will be our benediction. Well, let's do the, lo- the love of God. Is that, does that work for you? Okay. I'm going to pray, and, and, and then we're going to sing this just as our close. And when we're done, you can be dismissed. Our Heavenly Father, um, I pray that you'll help us not to be caught up in our world. Lord, help us not to be conformed by the attitude of this world. Lord, may that angel's message given to shepherds invade our life in such a way that we see that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is available to us even in the midst of difficult days. Lord, Lord, help us to have the peace that Jesus talks about in John 14, the, the peace that says that this world is going astray but my God will overcome. Lord, help us not to be weary of well-doing and doing the right things, Lord, but may, may we have a Samaritan's heart that sees with compassion, that, that, that moves to meet needs out of our own resources, that, that's committed to the long haul. Lord, may we see that 
To live optimistically, to think optimistically, that doesn't take front page headlines, but Lord, doing simple things, showing love to others. We're thankful for your great love. Help us to live it. In Jesus' name we pray.